Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's role as Iran's president is looking uncertain. The support that Mr. Ahmadinejad has enjoyed from the top leader no other president before him had had. That support is not there anymore. It's become conditional. OPEC, the world's oil cartel in disarray. The divisions within OPEC are so serious that it's really impossible to see the cartel coming together and making a decision to revise its production policy under any circumstances, except if prices were uncomfortably low and falling. And could America default on its debts? The White House spokesman has been mocked recently for continuing to say that this would be a calamity, it would be catastrophic, it would be calamitous. You know, the mood in Washington is that he's exaggerating the danger. I don't think he is. I think it is that serious. We start with Iran. President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad raised concerns in the international community this week by announcing on Wednesday that his country is planning to treble its capacity to produce highly enriched uranium over the next couple of years. At the same time, however, the president's own position at the top of the Iranian political spectrum is by no means secure. Earlier, Serena Tarling spoke to the FT correspondent in Tehran, Najmeh Bozegmir, about the president's reputation. She started off by asking her about the reasoning behind the announcement to increase uranium production. It comes at the time Mr. Ahmadinejad is involved in tense political infighting, so it can be part of his efforts to make himself indispensable for the regime again. Is there a sense that his survival is at stake at the moment with this infighting that's going on? He has certainly been weakened a lot, and uh, he has turned into an unlikely outsider to the regime. But it doesn't mean he is finished or he has to step down or he'll be impeached anytime soon. He is given the chance by the Supreme Leader to continue and finish his two years in office. So the bull is in his court. He cannot run the country the way he wanted before. There are certain conditions now. He has to abide by the laws approved by the parliament. He cannot expand his power over the ministries which are traditionally under the Supreme Leader. So if he accepts to play into this game, he can continue unless he decides that he wants to rebel against that and doesn't agree with this arrangement. But so far he has made some retreats. He accepted to appoint a caretaker oil minister. He had decided to run the oil ministry himself, but the parliament opposed that and he accepted to introduce a caretaker minister. So he is making some steps backwards, sending the signals that he wants to say and he doesn't plan to resign. And is there a sense in which the support that he's had from the Ayatollah is changing? Yes, it has definitely changed. Ayatollah Khamenei gave him full support. 
the support that Mr. Ahmadinejad has enjoyed from the top leader, no other president before him had had. That support is not there anymore. It's become conditional because he dared to publicly ignore the order from the supreme leader who reinstated the intelligence minister. And it was the first time a president publicly defied the supreme leader. This cannot be forgiven easily. And it showed that the president is going beyond the limit for any president. So that full support is certainly not there anymore. Is there also a sense that there's a power struggle underway now ahead of the elections next year? Usually before every election, you see tense political infighting, and this is also part of it. And the fact that Mr. Ahmadinejad wanted to have more access to intelligence ministry's file is believed to be part of his struggle to have more information about his rivals. So these are related to parliamentary election in March and presidential poll in 2013. Um, and you know that parliamentary election usually paves the way for the winner of presidential election. So p- political groups want to be winners of the parliamentary election so that they can win the presidential poll. That was Serena Tarling speaking to Najma Bazegmir in Tehran. Iran also plays a crucial role in the oil cartel OPEC, which met in Vienna on Wednesday, but failed to agree to increase production. Instead, the meeting quickly descended into what the Saudi oil minister, Ali Naimi, described as one of the worst meetings they'd ever had. Joining me now in the studio is our energy correspondent, David Blair. David, you were at the meeting on Wednesday. It looks as if OPEC's in total disarray. I think that's understating it. Uh, The divisions within OPEC are so serious that it's really impossible to see the cartel coming together and making a decision to revise its production policy under any circumstances except if prices were uncomfortably low and falling, when they would all have an interest in coming together. With that single rare exception, it's highly unlikely to see how they can take serious decisions again. Has this ever happened before? I mean, OPEC's been a fact of all our lives for 30, 40 years now. I mean, are we now seeing the end of this cartel that was so powerful for so long? Well, it's lasted since 1960. Um, so I, I would hesitate before predicting its breakup. It will certainly limp on. Uh, it suffered very serious divisions in the past. During the 1980s, two of its members, Iran and Iraq, were actually at war with each other. So these kinds of splits are not unknown, and they have recovered in the past. But it's very clear that as things stand, any revision of OPEC production policy, except perhaps if prices were uncomfortably low, is really off the table. What are the implications for the consumer nations? Because, again, I think uh, in the West, OPEC has been regarded as in some sort of incohate way as a rather bad thing, as the sort of enemy of the West. But in fact, an OPEC that isn't able to, to come up with a production policy might actually mean higher oil prices. It certainly means a more volatile market, and the short-term impact of the failure to reach any agreement on Wednesday has been a substantial rise in the oil price. The general expectation now is that prices will remain above $100 a barrel. Uh, That's probably what all OPEC members want, uh, and that seems to be what they're going to get. So at least in the medium term, we all have to live with it. And at the heart of the dispute in OPEC, it seems as if it's a sort of Iranian-Saudi standoff, with the Iranians actually having more followers than the Saudis. Mm. The crucial divide in OPEC is between the small group of countries who actually have spare capacity and the ability to pump more oil, which is really just Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and the UAE and everyone else. 
And that divide between those with and without spare capacity coincides with the divide between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is a geopolitical divide and a religious divide. So you put all that together and it becomes truly poisonous. And we saw that on display very clearly on Wednesday when Saudi Arabia, as you point out, only rallied a small group of countries, three other countries behind its proposal. It was opposed by pretty much everyone else. Uh, and the Saudi oil minister, who's regarded as a sort of stellar figure in the oil world, was humiliated publicly. And that, that as you say, does seem a remarkable reversal because we've always regarded Saudi Arabia as the biggest power in OPEC. It's no longer able to control them. The de facto leader of OPEC is the phrase that's often attached to Saudi Arabia, uh, and that's clearly inaccurate. You have a situation where the divisions are so poisonous that Saudi Arabia can't be sure of getting its way. And you have a situation where Iran uh, is able to rally everyone else, everyone who doesn't have spare capacity and the ability to pump more oil, uh, and everyone in OPEC who has no interest in helping Western economies behind blocking anything that Saudi Arabia may propose. You paint the, the economic logic behind the division in, in OPEC very clearly, but as you mentioned, there is also this geopolitical issue. I mean, Saudi Arabia and Iran are the two big rivals in the Gulf. Has this got wider implications for the balance of power between those two nations? Yes, I think it does. I think Iran can notch this up as a very significant diplomatic victory. It can show that it can take on Saudi Arabia in a gathering that, it, that Saudi Arabia had previously dominated and defeated in its own terms. Uh, and I think from Iran's point of view, it never had any interest whatever in revising OPEC's production quotas upwards, simply because it has no real concern for the world economy. It has no ability to pump more oil itself, so it couldn't benefit from any rise in, in output quotas. Plus, the Iranian regime is in, a, in any event so divided and so dysfunctional itself, it's probably incapable of taking any big decisions. So the default option for Iran was simply to oppose and say no. David, thank you very much indeed. Our final topic for today is the debate over whether to raise the United States' debt ceiling in order to ward off a potential default. Congress has less than two months to come to a decision. As it stands, the Democrats in one corner say that not raising the ceiling could sink the American economy, while the Republicans say the nation's ballooning deficit is the more dangerous threat. Earlier I spoke with our Washington columnist Clive Crook, about the debate, and I started off by asking him simply to explain what the debt ceiling is. The very idea of the debt ceiling in the first place is bizarre. I mean, it's, this is not a provision that strikes a European as, as very sensible or very natural. You know, the idea that once government borrowing reaches a certain level, 14.3 trillion, you know, the administration has to go to Congress to get authorization to keep borrowing. When you remember that borrowing is the outcome of decisions already made on taxes and spending. Once those decisions are made, borrowing just goes its own sweet way. The idea that Congress could vote to stop Congress. extra borrowing is, is bizarre. It's sort of uh, it's trying to impose restraint on themselves, in a yeah. sense. Well, of course, I, that, that is the defense, I think, somewhat offered, that it's the only way you can get a grip on spending, is the kind of brinkmanship that the debt ceiling debate provides. But I, I do think it's, it's weird. I mean, and to have an argument about conditions attached to raising the debt ceiling, which, uh, you know, creates a non-zero possibility of an actual default, strikes me as bizarrely reckless, amazingly reckless, but that is what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, let's go into that. I mean, uh, some people say this is a kind of artificial debate that the markets know that it's just political posturing, that in the end, America's credit will continue to be good and the debt ceiling will be raised. Is that uh, the case or is there a real chance, as you say, of an accident of there be this posturing getting out of hand and the markets taking fright? 
I think there is a real risk of an accident. I don't think it's huge, but I, I would remind people who say, you know, this could never happen, that that is a bet on the competence and the good faith of the politicians involved. And if you look at the, the way they've conducted themselves during the course of the debate, I think one hesitates to regard some of these congressmen as competent or acting in good faith. They do seem willing to take extraordinary chances. I've been disturbed recently by the fact that some Republicans are beginning to discuss different kinds of default. You know, so let's be clear. If they don't raise the debt ceiling, that is, in effect, a default. Yeah? No, well, that, that is beginning to be discussed. If they can't raise the debt ceiling, they can't borrow. But one argument is that they could prioritize certain kinds of spending to service the debts and just stop everything else. So what you could turn it into would be a kind of government shutdown of the kind that we have had in D.C. before, but not an actual default on debt. The Treasury's current position is that it would not be possible to do that. After August 2nd, you couldn't prioritize spending in that way, and you would actually have to start suspending payments on debt service. I don't know whether that's true. I mean, I don't know the answer. But the fact that Republicans are arguing about whether it might be true and are contemplating as it were, the permissibility of a qualified default, of a certain kind of default, that's alarming. And I think that's what gives rise to the possibility of something dreadful happening by accident. And the dreadful thing being that actually they do stop servicing their debt and there's a collapse in confidence in the dollar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that would, that would dr drastically alter uh, the market's perceptions of, of U.S. debt. I think there's an, there would be an enormous risk of, uh, well, not merely debt downgrades. I mean, in my view, I think U.S. debt should have been downgraded already because of this ongoing uncertainty about what, what, what will happen when the debt ceiling is reached. So I think if there's an actual default, the debt, debt would be downgraded and U.S. interest rates would rise. It would be a, a calamitous state of affairs. Actually, the White House spokesman has been mocked recently for, for continuing to say that this would be a calamity. It would be catastrophic. It would be calamitous. You know, the mood in Washington is that he's exaggerating the danger. I don't think he is. I think it is that serious. That was Clive Crook. And that's it for this week. My thanks to David and Clive in the studio and to Najme in Tehran. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.